0: Have you ever wanted to have a candlelit, family-style dinner with former President Donald Trump and his adult sons? No? Maybe? Yes? Well, today we got the news that the former president is hosting just that, a family-style candlelit dinner at Mar-a-Lago. That's happening later this year. And the point of this candlelit meal is to raise funds to help pay the legal bills for the many, many criminal code defendants and witnesses in all the many, many legal cases against Trump. Now, we do not know how much a seat at this special dinner will cost as yet. Candles set a mood, though they are expensive. We do know that Mr. Trump reportedly headlined a very similar event just this evening where tickets were $100,000 a pop. And while we do not know whether this one benefited from the warm glow of candles, we do know tonight's event in Bedminster, New Jersey, was a fundraising dinner specifically for the legal defense of Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Which makes sense. Rudy Giuliani seems like he really needs cash right now. I'm not going to play too much of this, but I want to show you how the former New York City mayor— ended his YouTube show on the night he voluntarily surrendered himself to a Fulton County jail a couple of weeks ago.
1: I guess I surrendered myself, but I haven't surrendered. I went there and made oh. my statement to fight. Uh, so go to uh, mypillows.com. I don't know. Get Help him out. you got, You, you got you to need some of his stuff. I keep buying his stuff. You can buy it. Uh, the, the, the slippers are fabulous. I wish I had them on now. Can't wait to get these shoes off.
0: The slippers are fabulous. Can't wait to get these shoes off. I apologize if you cannot unsee the mental image of Rudy Giuliani's feet. For whatever it matters, neither can I. But the pillow slipper pitch on the heels of a criminal indictment is pretty wild, even for Rudy Giuliani. I mean, even for an infomercial, it seems desperate. And that is apparently how much Mr. Giuliani needs the cash. Then there's Newsmax, a conservative news network that frequently hosts Mr. Giuliani as a guest. Media Matters spotted that despite calling (laughs) itself a news network, Newsmax appears to be running a legal defense fund on Rudy Giuliani's behalf. Over and over again, Newsmax hosts have been making nearly identical fundraising pitches on air, as if they're just totally normal news segments. We put a few of them together so you can see just how weird this is.
2: Mayor Rudy Giuliani is warning Americans that you may
1: be next. Mayor Rudy Giuliani is warning Americans that you may be next.
2: Mayor Giuliani has also announced that he has launched a legal defense fund to help defend himself against insane district attorney Fannie Willis was,
0: who
1: wants to put Rudy and 18 other co-defendants in jail, including President Trump. President, President Trump, Trump is Trump urging, Americans, urging Americans, Americans to support George. Mayor Giuliani. If you want more information, you can go to RudyFund.com. On the up, right on the screen. your screen. We certainly hope that you do.
0: We certainly hope that you do, is what they said. Rudy Giuliani certainly hopes that you do. Now, Media Matters points out that the website that Newsmax tells uh, viewers to go to in this interesting set of (laughs) coordinated announcements, that website is rudyfund.com. And that website is a domain hosted by Newsmax itself. And the mailing address for physical checks is the same as Newsmax's mailing address. Same thing. Now, we have no clue what is going on there, but it's definitely unusual. And Rudy Giuliani really seems like he needs money right now. And he is not alone. More than half a dozen of Trump's co-defendants appear to have set up crowdfunding pages to raise money for their legal defense. And all of those, those crowdfunding pages, are in the Georgia election cases for people who have already been indicted. Remember that when Trump was indicted in the federal election case by Jack Smith, that indictment listed six unindicted co-conspirators. We think we know who most of those people are, but we do not know who all of them are. And the tricky thing for unindicted co-conspirators is that at any point that un as an unindicted could be dropped and they themselves could just be indicted co-conspirators with some real legal bills to pay. Today, the same grand jury that Jack Smith used to indict Trump last month met again in D.C. today. It was the first time in four weeks that these jury members have been spotted there. And the question is, the question I would very much like to know the answer to, is what and who could that all be about? Joining me now to discuss all this is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and David Aaron, former prosecutor in the DOJ's National Security Division and a former Manhattan assistant district attorney. Thank you both for being here, Dave um the special grand jury is or the grand jury convened for Jack Smith is set to expire on September 15th. Is that a real deadline? What does that indicate to you about the urgency with which the special counsel may be investigating?
1: I think the, the special counsel can extend that grand jury or, or ask for it to be extended and, and won't hesitate to do so if that's what's going to be best for the case. Um, you know, certainly I think he's, he's moving with all deliberate speed Uh, perhaps to add additional defendants, perhaps to add additional charges.
0: Yeah, we had some reporting from CNN that I'll quote. Uh, Smith is now focusing on how, how money raised off baseless claims of voter fraud was used to fund attempts to breach voting equipment in several states won by Biden, according to multiple sources. In both interviews... Prosecutors have focused their questions on the role of former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell. That suggests a new avenue of investigation, not necessarily sort of tying up the, the tying with a bow the case against the unnamed co-conspirators. Right. Is that right? It, it adds
1: a couple dimensions, one of which is financial, which is really important uh, to add to this case is is to show that there was money involved rather than ideology. And I think it even expands the scope or the notion of who the victims are. The victims are the people who gave the money. Right. Um, And then, of course, there is the question of what was that money used for? And does that tie the fundraising, uh, you know, the alleged fundraising scam to additional uh, criminal activity? Um, So it is it is an interesting through line.
0: Um, Barb, I think there are a lot of people who wonder, well, what about the unnamed co-conspirators? That's still not complete. We don't have the list of those six names is your expectation that we're not going to though, though there's no going to be that there are going to be no charging indictments on those folks
3: until after Trump goes to trial on this? I think that seems right Alex it seems like the strategy that Jack Smith is using here is to keep everything focused on Donald Trump for now in this case so that he can maximize the likelihood that this case can go to trial before the election. You've got a five-year statute of limitations. And with these events occurring in 2021, that means they've got till 2026 before they have to uh, complete the investigation to file charges on these others. And frankly, they can wait. The most important thing now is to get a conviction of Donald Trump so that the voters have that information before the election. I'd say the same is likely true with regard to this New Avenue investigation that we're just talking about, about the money and fundraising off of these false claims that could be charged in a separate indictment. It could be a superseding indictment in this already pending case, in the January 6th case, but it seems to me if Jack Smith's strategy is to get that case to trial as quickly as possible, he'd be better off charging the fundraising allegations in a separate indictment.
0: Is it considered, Barb, untoward or, or somehow sort of gaming the system to wait to charge those co-conspirators? If Smith effectively, essentially, already knows what he might charge them with, uh, just in the name of expediting the trial of
3: Donald Trump, it's a very good question, Alex. And the Supreme Court answered that question in the United States versus Lavasco. It's a case I teach in my criminal procedure case, which is why it is at the is. I'm tip going of my to my TV law school, Barb. I'm, this is I'm <laughs> learning and I'm taking notes. Proceed, learning please. Very well. Um, and it's perfectly permissible. As long as the case is charged within the statute of limitations, the government can continue to collect evidence. It is not required to charge just as soon as it has probable cause. It can continue to investigate. And the only deadline is the statute of limitations.
0: Mm. But if, having said that, I mean, if you're a defendant, Dave, and you're watching <laughs> the grand jury reconvene, you know that the, the axe hangs above your head, your name is perhaps Rudy Giuliani, and you're out there— Effectively, you know, making infomercials for my pillow slippers to raise funds. You have candlelight dinners that are being hosted. Are the if you're Donald Trump and you're <laughs> just for a moment, right. if you will, is the reason Donald Trump hosting the? Is the reason he's doing these kind of candlelight dinners and making such an effort to raise money for a person that is a key player in these investigations, if not these actual trials. Could that have to do with some behind-the-scenes wrangling to make sure that Rudy Giuliani stays loyal?
1: You know, it's, I think it's important to watch who gets their defense funded yeah. and who doesn't. And that's going to tell you a lot. Uh, everyone always talks about follow the money, and that's as true here as it is anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, why raise money for him and not for the defense of others if, if that is what's going on?
0: So that is your very prosecutorial answer that perhaps there is something happening there that would suggest Donald Trump has an I mean, Barb, from your outside assessment here, the, the notion that Donald Trump doesn't hold a candlelight dinner for just anybody and that he's doing this for Rudy Giuliani, I, I guess, I, should we draw inferences from that?
3: Well, you know, you can certainly speculate that he is trying to curry favor with Rudy Giuliani, keep him in his good graces. Uh, you know, it, it goes back to some of those things. Remember that we heard statements that they were making to uh, Michael Cohen about, remember, you've got friends in high places. It sounds an awful lot like that. But I, I think anything short of, of a very, very overt uh, example of tampering with a witness is not likely uh, to rise to the level of criminal charges for Mm -hmm. obstruction of justice. You can see that sometimes if you are trying to persuade a person to testify in a certain way, I think simply holding a fundraiser for him, as rare as it may be, is probably not enough for criminal charges. Mm -hmm.
0: I I do wonder when we talk about the special counsel and uh, what he's been up to this week, Dave, we know that in a filing this week, um, Jack Smith's team, pointed to what they call, quote, Trump's daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury in this particular case in and around January 6th in the 2020 election. Um, he's filed a motion under seal that pertains to those extrajudicial du- du- judicial statements. Um, we know that Trump has been targeting Jack Smith online. Um, what's the point of filing this under seal if these are public extrajudicial statements? And how do you read the sort of news of this?
1: So assuming that the filing is about those those extrajudicial statements, there's something else in that motion that is non-public. And it could be someone's address. It could be personal details of someone who's been targeted, if it is indeed about those statements. So, you know, the, the process that's followed is the main filing is done under seal and then a redacted version can be made public. Mm-hmm. So it, we don't know how much of that filing would have to be redacted. We don't know if it's one line or most of the filing that is causing it uh, to be filed under seal. So it's really hard to tell. And this is just one of those frustrating things about
0: watching a criminal case unfold from the outside. Yeah, well, and and following every procedural move. But I I mean, I I would ask you if presumably this has to do with the statements Trump is making publicly and the fact that they are having an impact on the case already before they're even at trial. And I wonder if you think we are fast approaching the threshold at which the judge is going to have to do something here.
1: That day may come. I, I can I can see why the judge wouldn't want to do that. Uh, unless it was absolutely necessary. And at what point do you decide it's gone too far? Yeah, because the the impact of that in, in many different ways is going to be enormous if that hammer does drop. Uh,
0: Barb, do you feel like I mean, this is just a stress test <laughs> for our entire judicial system. And I wonder how optimistic you are about our, uh, you know, the, the system's ability to keep someone like
3: Donald Trump in check. It's really tricky because he's running for president. I think if we didn't have that complicating factor, the judge would be much quicker to impose a gag order and say you can't say these kinds of things. But because he is running for president, I think that you're looking at the rights of the voters to have fulsome information. And if he says things like "I need to be able to defend myself publicly," and part of that is pointing out what I believe to be, you know, the corrupt motives of the prosecutor and the judge, and so it makes it difficult for them to muzzle him as much as they might like. But I do think that. as Dave said, there is a point at which a judge has a responsibility to protect the integrity of the process and the witnesses and the prosecutor and the judge themselves uh, by by gagging some of these statements. Well, and it seems like the um, Department
0: of Justice is not messing around here. Barbara McQuaid and David Aaron, thank you both for your time and expertise today. I appreciate it. Thank you. We have much more ahead this evening, including an effort to keep presidential candidate Donald Trump off the ballot in at least one state. How exactly could that work? Could that work? But first, we know D.A. Fonnie Willis has been targeted by members of Trump's base and by conservatives in Congress. But today, she offered a glimpse at the specific kind of threats faced by women who dare to hold men like Donald Trump to account. That is coming up next. County D.A. Fani Willis is an independent state prosecutor. Her indictment of Donald Trump and 18 alleged co-conspirators is a state-level racketeering and conspiracy charge. But that reality has not stopped Republicans in Congress from getting involved. After Willis's criminal indictment was issued, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Jim Jordan, launched an investigation into her investigation. And well, today... D.A. Willis responded to his demands for documents related to her case. D.A. Willis did not mince words. She called it an unjustified and illegal intrusion. She said Mr. Jordan was flagrantly at odds with the Constitution and also lacked a basic understanding of the law and its practice. Instead of her investigation, she suggested Mr. Jordan train his attention and that of the Justice Department on the threats her office has received. By way of proof, Ms. Willis attached examples of racist and anti-Semitic and violent threats she has received, including the fan fiction style submission of Willis being shot at her home by someone disguised as a postal worker. It says in part, the postal worker assailant throws the box to the ground to reveal a small plastic pistol and silencer. Fonny T. Willis painfully crawls, bleeding inside the house. This vile submission continues in gruesome detail, but you get the point. Now, this is not the first time that Fannie Willis or citizens associated with this case have been threatened, and the D.A. is not the only black woman prosecuting Donald Trump who has become a public target. New York Attorney General Letitia James says that as a result of her case against Trump, she has received death threats and is concerned about a lone wolf style attack. But the high stakes and the national interest in this Georgia case in particular could mean that for D.A. Fonnie Willis, these threats may just be an opening salvo. Joining us now is the former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. She, of course, recently served in the Biden administration as a senior advisor and director of the White White House's Office of Public Engagement. Mayor Bottoms, thank you so much for being here. I'm so eager to, well, first hear your thoughts about what's going on, the targeting of the DA, and the language that is being the vitriol, the hate, the racism that is being thrown in her direction. As a a black female leader from Georgia yourself, what was your reaction to all this?
4: It, It hurts. To hear it. I know Fani very well. We started off together uh, practicing law as very young attorneys. Um, I've known her for many years. I was at her wedding. I've known her, her children. Um, so th- this is very personal. So it's deeply disturbing that this independently elected district attorney is being subjected to this by someone in Washington, D.C., this this full investigation. Uh, And she's absolutely right. Uh, These uh, threats against her should concern us all, because what we see happening here, Alex, we see this erosion of our democracy. What we are witnessing, we witnessing people being intimidated. There is an attempt to make people afraid to do their jobs, and it is going to scare good people away from serving in office. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case with Fannie Willis. I know that won't be the case with Fannie Willis. I describe Fannie as fearless, uh, but it should be deeply troubling to all of us, no matter what our, our party affiliation is.
0: Do you see these threats as a direct extension of the way in which President, former President Trump, has targeted prosecutors, but specifically prosecutors of color, who he has called reverse, ra- I don't even think he's he used the word reverse, he could just call them racist. I mean, is this the harvest
4: of those seeds? Um, It it absolutely. Um, and, And what you've seen over the past several years is that this underbelly, this hatred that's simmered beneath the surface for so long has now been given permission to make its make its face known. Um, And I think it's come directly from the top. It's come from Donald Trump. He used the podium in the White House to say hateful things. He uses his bully pulpit. He continues to do that. And um, we have to remember that there has been violence directed towards our elected officials. We know what happened with Speaker Pelosi's husband. We've seen Congress people targeted in the past. So this is not something that we are talking about in the abstract. This is something that can happen if people continue to feed those flames of hatred in our country.
0: Yeah, and I, I think uh, the DA, uh, uh, Fulton County DA, Willis, is acutely aware of that reality, right? I mean, be in the run-up to the announcement of the indictment, she was very clear with law enforcement down in Atlanta that they were to offer, they, that she would need extra security. As the former mayor of Atlanta, if you were still in that position today, what kind of preparations would you be making? I mean, what practically can be done in a situation like this, where grand jurors who were involved in the um, the charging and indi- in the initial indictment, they were docs. Their families have been targeted. Their their You know, their identities have been made public. A jury has to be seated and selected for this case. And it seems like there are a number of people intent on terrorizing the citizenry of Fulton County and Georgia writ large. What do you do if you're in charge of keeping Georgia and Atlanta safe to make sure that that terror comes to an end?
4: Well, I've been on the other I've been on the receiving end of it when I when I served as mayor, I've received very hateful messages directed toward me, directed Uh, toward members of my family. So I know what it feels like. And then on top of that, you still have a job that you have to go out and do. So you do the very best that you can. You beef up your security. You make sure that your, your personal security detail is in place. But of course, jurors don't have a personal security detail. The district attorney does. Many elected officials in major cities, like, like, whether it be the mayor or, or even the governor of the state, will have a personal detail, but yours don't. What they are doing is that they are going to do their civic duty to show up and serve uh, and to be responsible members of our citizenry. So it's really unfortunate that this is happening. And what makes it what really pains me, Alex, is that I don't hear a lot of leaders speaking mm-hmm. out against it. I think of the quote of Audrey Lord: Your silence will not protect you. It's not enough that you're not the one who's saying the hurtful words. Where is the courage? Where is where where are these people to stand up and say this is not acceptable and not reflective of who we are as a party and as a country?
0: Yeah, you are so right. This is not a moment to remain silent, especially if you are in the Republican Party. No person should have to withstand threats like this. Keisha Lance Bottoms, Bottoms, invaluable perspective on this. Thank you so much for your time and perspective tonight. We have much more still to come. How Republicans are trying to impeach one of their own in the state of Texas and what lessons the national party might learn from it, if at all. Plus the push to get Trump off the ballot in certain states using the 14th Amendment. The great Claire McCaskill joins me on that coming up next. Colorado voters, Republicans and independents, are trying to block Donald Trump from running for president in their state. They filed a lawsuit in a state district court in Denver yesterday, alleging that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump should be barred from running for office. Now, that clause states that anyone who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution as an elected official and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or gave aid or comfort to the enemies thereof— should not be able to hold federal or state office again. Former President Trump responded to all that today in the way that only he can.
1: What they're doing is it's called election interference and all these lawsuits get in the way. Now, the 14th Amendment is just a continuation of that. It's nonsense. Nobody's even said um, is insurrection. And by the way, there wasn't any guns in the Capitol. You know, the insurrection is, frankly, the people that insurrected on the election and rigged the election. Those are the insurrectionists.
0: Joining me now to discuss this is Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator from Missouri. Claire, thank you for being here. I am eager to know what your perspective is on the 14th Amendment being used to keep Trump off the ballot as both a political uh, mind and a legal scholar, a lawyer, a trained lawyer yourself. Do you, what do you think of the merits of this?
5: well let's let's do the legal part first yeah um, this is a this came into being Alex because of the Civil War and this was an effort to make sure that those people who tried to divide our country and secede from our country and fought with our country uh, did not become part of the union in terms of the government. It really has never been used in this way before that doesn't mean this is not a good faith legal effort. very conservative, respected Republican judges have, and lawyers and scholars have all weighed in and said this is an appropriate use of the 14th Amendment, that they can prove that he supported an insurrection, a coup, uh, by lying and by encouraging people to stop the count of electoral votes. So I think it is a legitimate case to be heard. Now, what happens after this case is heard? Uh, there's a lot of complications here. First of all, it's not clear that these voters have standing. Yeah. Traditionally, in the federal system and, and even in most state courts, standing in this instance would just be his opponent. It would not be a voter. There's a question about whether or not the case is ripe for determination, whether it is far enough along in the process that the court has anything in front of them they can actually rule on. And then finally, I think we all know, If, in fact, this case uh, was found in favor of the plaintiff's, And it would go all the way to the Supreme Court. So this is one that those nine justices that we've talked a lot about over the last year would ultimately make the call on.
0: Well, and and I think there's the question, too, about whether Trump needs to actually be convicted of being involved in the insurrection. Notably, the charges that he faces on the federal level from Jack Smith in and around January 6th do not include incitement to insurrection. So, I mean, do you think that is meaningful in all of this, that he has to actually be proven uh, to be guilty of involvement in the insurrection or sedition?
5: Well, the determination in the criminal case would not be um, necessary for this case, but there would still have to be proof. There would have to be proof to the satisfaction of a jury or a judge, if it was judge tried, that the facts that were presented were sufficient to qualify under the language of the 14th Amendment. Uh, I I think if, in fact, a court said he could not be on the ballot – It would only be this very conservative Supreme Court that could ever make a decision to keep him off the ballot that I think the country would even come close to accepting. Uh, Most of the country, uh, maybe 40 percent of the country would be cheering, but it would be very divisive. And politically, let's think about this for a minute. Does Joe Biden want Donald Trump off the ballot? Or does he want to run against a known quantity that is terribly unpopular and polling awful with independents? And Democratic voters across the country.
0: Well, right. There's that very specific reality. And then I would, I think it's also, I mean, how do, how does someone like Joe Biden abide the notion of his opponent being taken off the ballot, setting aside the sort of what, what that leaves him with in terms of an opposition candidate? I mean, there are there are efforts underway in Florida, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Ohio, and Wisconsin. Uh, people writing the secretaries of state in those states, urging them not to include Trump on the ballots. I mean, imagine a scenario where in key states, across Across the country, Trump is taken off. I I, I know that that is maybe satisfying to some Democrats and opponents of Trump, people who have not found his candidacy or presidency to be a good thing for America. But at the same time, I just wonder about the division that that sows in the country and, and how that actually would go down without some kind of crisis.
5: Well, it would be a crisis, but it would be a crisis that would ultimately be determined by the Supreme Court. There is no way the Supreme Court is going to let individual states decide whether or not a former president can be on the ballot. Uh, They are going to take up this question if these cases prevail in any state where they're even contemplating it right now. And it would take a bunch of those very conservative and even some of those Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices uh, to make a monumental decision like this. I'm not arguing that Trump is not guilty of acting in a way that disqualifies him for the presidency, but I'm pretty sure Joe Biden would rather prove that in the ballot box
0: than in court. I think you are correct. Senator Claire McCaskill, always great to see you. Thank you so much for your wisdom, Claire. It's great to see you. Thanks, Alex. Still to come tonight, as Texas politics get mired in the right wing, the man hoping to unseat, Ted Cruz, joins me live. But first...
3: I have learned so much and can't wait to share my new knowledge. I'm gonna share what I've learned too. I love the environment and wanna do what's best for the planet. It isn't with solar and wind energy.
0: Just who is financing the climate denialism that is getting peddled to kids in Oklahoma and Florida? That story is next. Here are two people you have probably never heard of. This is Dan and Ferris Wilkes. They are brothers from Texas. They grew up poor and the story goes that they grew up in a goat shed. But these days, the Wilkes brothers are billionaires. Dan and Ferris Wilkes started a fracking company which they sold for billions of dollars a little over a decade ago. And as have their billionaire forefathers before them, the Wilkes brothers are now spending that fortune on politics, specifically conservative politics. In 2016, the Wilkes Brothers made what is believed to be the largest single campaign contribution of the presidential cycle. They donated $15 million to a super PAC supporting Ted Cruz for president. Ferris Wilkes says he believes that our country was founded on the idea that our rights come from the creator, not the government, and that Ted Cruz was the best candidate to support those values. Together, the brothers have donated millions to hardline conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation and the Liberty Council, which defended a Kentucky clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses to gay couples. Ferris Wilkes also continues his political activism in his own church, where he is the lead pastor. He has given sermons about how homosexuality is, quote, a perversion tantamount to bestiality, pedophilia and incest, and that it is a predatorial lifestyle. His church maintains that the Bible is historically and scientifically accurate in every detail and that climate change is God's will. Quote, if God wants the polar ice caps to remain in place, then he will leave them there. And it is on that last point that climate change is God's will where the Wilkes brothers are notably pointing their fire hose of fracking money.
3: I just hear that solar and wind are the way to save the planet.
2: Unfortunately, many of the people who talk about how great they are for the environment give misleading information and leave out very important facts. Like what? For starters, even when the sun shines bright and windmills spin fast, wind and solar just aren't powerful enough to power the modern world. The energy from them just isn't dancing robust enough.
3: <sighs> what was that? Was that a bird? Ew, gross. Did that bird just get killed
4: by a windmill?
2: Yes, it did. Like many people, Layla, you've been misled about renewable energy and their impact on the environment. I never thought about windmills killing birds. Windmills kill so many birds, it's hard to track how many. But that's just the start of how negative wind and solar are for our natural environment.
0: You may recognize the style of that video. We have been talking about this specific kind of media a lot on this show recently. The video is courtesy of PragerU Kids, which creates conservative propaganda styled as educational material for children. PragerU Kids is an offshoot of PragerU, which is not a U as in university. It is an unaccredited right-wing advocacy group. Now, there is a whole library of these PragerU kids videos, which tell kids that climate change is no big deal, that renewable energy does not really work and otherwise peddles misinformation and bunk science about the very real climate crisis in this country at a time when millions of Americans are currently living under extreme heat advisories. And these videos are now allowed to be shown to students in Florida and Oklahoma public schools. They have been approved by those states' departments of education, which we reported on earlier this week. But the reason we are revisiting this story is because in the course of our research into this, we have learned that those videos, those Prager You kids' videos that tell children how bad solar and wind power are for our natural environment, those videos were made possible by a pair of fracking tycoons, the Wilkes Brothers. According to The Guardian, financial records reveal that Dan and Ferris Wilkes have poured more than $8 million into Prager's coffers over the last decade, and it seems like it was money relatively well spent. The Wilkes' millions have helped bring climate change denialism and right-wing pseudoscience into America's classrooms in at least two states, with several others on the horizon. One might also imagine that teaching kids about the evils of renewable energy and the divine destiny that is the melting of the polar ice caps isn't so bad for business when you're in the business of fossil fuels. So win-win on that one. Dan and Ferris Wilkes, remember these names.
1: I was deeply concerned that the name and authority and power of our office had been, in my view, hijacked to serve the interests of an individual against the interests of the broader public. I mean, I really wanted him to come clean. I even said, are you under undue influence, sir? And he said no. He did say no. Yes. Mr. Paxton should be removed from office because he failed to protect the state and instead used the power of his elected office for his own benefit.
0: Those were the scenes from the impeachment trial of Ken Paxton, the Republican attorney general of Texas. And those were Texas Republicans and conservatives detailing his alleged misdeeds. The 61 percent Republican majority state Senate is trying Paxton on charges of bribery, obstruction of justice and violations of the public trust. And it is a rare display of Republicans attempting to root out corruption within their own party. There is just one problem. The national leaders of that same party disagree with what is happening. Donald Trump took time away from his own various legal troubles to denounce the impeachment trial against Paxton, calling it election interference, which is his catchphrase at this point. And Republican Senator Ted Cruz agreed with Trump, calling the impeachment effort a travesty and defending Mr. Paxton's record as a conservative warrior against the Biden administration. Joining me now is Texas Congressman Colin Allred, who is currently running for the Democratic nomination for Senate to unseat Senator Ted Cruz next year. Congressman, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, What's your assessment of what's happening right now with Ken Paxton? Is this, do you see this as a sign of hope? What do you, what kind of credit do you give the GOP in Texas?
2: Well, this is Republican led, as you said, it's going to be decided in many ways by Republicans. Uh, But I think the Texans are tired of being embarrassed by so many of our elected officials. Mm -hmm. And that goes for Ken Paxton. And it's also true about Ted Cruz. And that's what I think most folks around the country might understand about our state, uh, is that I think we're, we're tired of this. We're tired of this reputation. We're tired of people who aren't doing the job that they're elected to do. Mm-hmm. Who are pursuing their own agendas. And so I do think there's, there's some hope to take from the fact that the Texas House, which is Republican dominated, voted for this overwhelmingly. I don't know what's going to happen in the trial. Yeah. But I know the folks like Ted Cruz and Ken Paxton are all about themselves. And they're an embarrassment to our state.
0: Well, I was kind of shocked that Ted Cruz is out on a, uh, a limb defending Paxton, given the fact that Republicans in the state are so clearly against him, and the fraud seems so clear. Then again, you have someone like George Soros who remains in the House because the Kevin McCarthy needs his yeah. vote, and I wonder, is it is it the is it the fraud that they really take issue with? in a way that they will excuse the other outlandish things that, that members of their own party get away with? I mean, is is that was that the tipping point for this?
2: Well, for Ted Cruz, all that matters is our, which side are you on on the culture war? Yeah. Where are you on that? Are you on our side or are you on the other side? If you're on our side, then there's no conduct uh, that's you know unbecoming, no conduct that goes too far. Uh, and to me, you know, this is the issue we have in our politics right now, Yeah, uh, is that there's no accountability. I come from a background where I played in the NFL uh, and where accountability is all that's what it's all about. Yeah. There's games going on right now. Tomorrow they're going to watch the film. They're going to correct the mistakes. And you have, you have to you know, get that corrected or you're going to lose your job. And that's what we have to do in our politics now. In Texas, we have to have folks like this who are an embarrassment to our state, who aren't doing the job, they have to be voted out. That's what we're going to do with Ted Cruz.
0: Okay. And we're going to talk about Ted Cruz in one second, but I do want to talk about other things that are happening in your state that are distressing Uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. We know that Texas has had a very, very hardline position on reproductive freedoms. Texas towns and cities on the Texas border with Mexico or on state borders are now outlawing, driving through them for the purpose of obtaining an abortion. There are women who now have to travel to Mexico to get reproductive health care uh, is, does this have any repercussions at the ballot box? Yeah. I mean, how does this, how is this being abided by the pe- the citizens of Texas? Yeah.
2: Well, d- does this sound like freedom to anybody? No. You know, we're going to, we're we going to do next. We're going to start boarding planes and trains and buses and asking women, what's the nature of your travel, ma'am? Yeah. I mean, where is this going? It's so unbelievable. And it's a tragedy. What's happening in our state every single day. You know, there are lawyers, not doctors, determining whether or not a woman is sick enough to have a pregnancy terminated. There are victims of rape and incest with nowhere to go. Uh, And it's a tragedy for our state. But we don't have to put up with it. We can codify Roe v. Wade at the federal level. I voted to do that in the House of Representatives when I'm in the Senate. We will do that. And we can vote out folks like Ted Cruz who want to take this nationwide. and want to have a nationwide ban on abortion and to inspect your travel, so wow. if folks out there think that that's not who we are as Americans or Texans. I ask them go to ColinAllRed.com, get involved with us.
3: Well,
0: yeah, and we know that they're you know with Tommy Tuberville's uh, hold in the Senate, they're very much interested in policing uh, where that's women right. go that's to right. get their health care. I will also say I meant George Santos, not George Soros, because George Soros is obviously not a Republican congressman who has been uh, reported to be very um, fraudulent in his activities. Ted Cruz, do we can we do we have time to play this fascinating uh, portrait of Ted? Cruz's culture war against. Yes, let's play the beer stunt ad for sound, please.
3: And now these idiots have come out and said, drink two beers a week. That's their guideline.
1: Well, i got to tell you, if they want us to drink two beers a week, frankly, they can kiss my ass.
0: Okay, so the USDA, an official of the USDA suggested at one point that America may some someday adopt guidelines that suggest people drink no more than two beers uh, a week. And that is Ted Cruz's response. You obviously have some thoughts about Ted Cruz. What is what is on display there when you see Ted Cruz do whatever that is?
2: He's playing Texas. He thinks that that's what Texas is. Uh, He's a fake Texan in a lot of ways. He's an Ivy League trained lawyer. He he knows what he's talking about. He knows that that's not, there's no requirement coming down the pipe for, for that, but he's pretending and he's trying to appeal to the culture war. That's the only thing he has to offer. He doesn't vote for the infrastructure bill that's bringing $35 billion to our state over five years or the Chips and Science Act that's bringing high-tech manufacturing to Texas. He doesn't vote after the shooting in Uvalde for the safer Communities Act, which is the first time in 30 years we've done anything on gun violence that John Cornyn helped lead. This is what he has to offer. Yeah. It's culture war and stunts. And Texans are embarrassed and they're tired of it. And that's why we're going to get rid of them.
0: I would also say I think he likes pretending to be, like, super macho and likes will a but that's just my laments. Well, his opponent's and...
2: going to be a former NFL linebacker, well... so you can try that.
0: So, <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> Texas Congressman Colin Allred, thanks for joining me. Please don't try and, you know, <laughs> ram me when this over. Thank <laughs> That is our show for this evening.